31. And if you don't have one of these handy little books, finally got some ordered. They're on the back table there. Feel free to grab one. This is just the confession and the catechisms with the scripture proofs in there. And so, like I said, they're on the table there in the entryway. And if you don't have one, please feel free to get one. I, I did get some more. Uh, I just forgot to bring them with me today. So we do have more than are out there. Feel free to take all of those. Um, my goal was that at least each household would get to have a copy. All right, so we, we weren't able to meet last week, but two weeks ago we were looking chapter 31 of Synods and Councils. And let's just read that first paragraph again. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils, and it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them for edification and not for destruction to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at something of the shift in um, the emphases of this paragraph, particularly um, from the previous, the original edition, this American uh, edit back in the 17, late 1780s was done, and I think was correctly done, to clarify and to make clear that the government of the church does not depend upon the permission of the state. Um, they, they were in a different historical context where they were actually met at the request of the state government of their time. And it was just part of their culture and experience of what they expected to be the case. But when we look at the scriptures, we see that uh, the church has every authority to call herself together and it would be the normal experience uh, for her to do so. And it does not depend in any way upon uh, the request of a civil government that they do so, but rather to be done on their own authority that Christ has given them and to do so as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church, as our confession says. So let's look then. We have scripture references to Acts chapter 15. So we have specific verses pointed out at various places here. Then we have the entire chapter referenced in, uh, toward the end there to appoint such assemblies, Acts 15 uh, as a whole. So let's go ahead and just read that chapter. And then we'll go back through and note the specific verses that um, our attention is called to to make these points. So in Acts chapter 15, we read, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, 
when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. 
Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one, who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right, well, if we, if we go back to our first footnote there, we have a reference to verses 2, 4, and 6. And the main, the main point, as we look at this council that was called in Jerusalem, is that it does have, as the confession says, a purpose for the better government and further edification of the church. In other words, it wasn't just a way to achieve a common decision in terms of the government of the church, that they wouldn't be division, that they would come to an agreement on what to do, but also for the further edification of the church. It's in this council that they are looking at God's Word, they're sharing the testimony of what God has done with and through them and has taught them, and they are helping one another understand the work of God more accurately in their time. It was for the better government and further edification of the church that there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. So in verse, in verse 2 of Acts 15, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them uh, there in the mission field in these churches, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And it's important to know, how was this going to be resolved? There wasn't some figurehead uh, on earth, some vicar of Christ ruling over the church. Well, let's just go ask the, the, uh, the head apostle there at Jerusalem or any such thing that would uh, be more of a pattern um, such as the Roman Catholic Church has followed. No, when, when there is this um, crisis of, of there being dissension and debate in the church, uh, these are appointed by the church to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders. Even in the days of the apostles, these men who had been Christ's disciples, had followed him, had been taught by him personally, uh, we see here the template or the pattern being established for the further generations of the church. It's not to be just resolved by the apostles, but it is a council of the apostles and the elders. And these apostles even viewed themselves as elders. We read in Peter's letter, uh, he describes himself as your fellow elder in, uh, in 1 Peter. And so these men were to be gathered together, all of those who could be gathered there in Jerusalem, uh, the apostles and the elders, uh, that they would hear this matter. In verse 4, notice when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And then in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And so, again, elders not only have this function, this normal function in the local church where they are raised up to 
be under shepherds of a particular congregation, but when occasion calls, they are also to be gathered in an assembly of elders to hear a matter of common concern to the church. That's what we're seeing in these verses. It is for the better government and further edification of the church. This is the pattern that God has given us in His Word and in the history of the church. And so how, how are those assemblies to be called together and by whom? And that's where the American edition gives this helpful addition. And it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them for edification and not for destruction to appoint such assemblies. How did this assembly come about? How did they end up convening there in Jerusalem? Well, the churches out in the, the mission field in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, they were the ones experiencing this trouble. There were those who were claiming to come even from the apostles, from Jerusalem, who were coming and adding to the gospel that they had heard, which was that they must repent and believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation, that they're saved by faith in Christ, and that they are called then as the new disciples of Christ to follow him, certainly. Paul emphasizes the matter of obedience and good works greatly in these letters to the Gentile churches. Uh, you can look at Colossians, Titus, uh, Galatians, Ephesians. Each of those have practical instructions about Christian living. So it's not some cheap and easy grace that they've preached that they only have to just say a few words or walk down an aisle or make a one-time decision and then that's the the sum total of the gospel no paul had been preaching the gospel we find in the new testament which was that their salvation was in faith alone in christ alone but that it would be followed by and manifested by and worked out in a transformed life of putting off the old man and putting on the new. And so uh, there were misconceptions even at the time. We see then that those churches, this originated in the scene of the conflict. Antioch, these churches around there, uh, they're, they're being roiled with uh, conflict as men who are claiming to come from the apostles, who did come from Judea, in fact, have come and said, um, actually, what you've been taught by Paul and these others is only part of what you need. You have to be circumcised. You have to be added back to the Old Testament expression of the covenant people of God through circumcision. That's how you can have standing in the people of God. And so, to the point of our confession, it was not some outside power or authority that called for this assembly. It wasn't that there was dissension and dispute and open discussion in Antioch, and the regional governor said, well, this isn't good. We need to settle this. I'm going to call an assembly. No, the elders there in those churches did what? They appointed, in verse 2, 
uh, they appointed Paul and Barnabas and some of the others to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders. Uh, they were requesting this assembly. Uh, it's also important to note that it wasn't Jerusalem that called this assembly. Uh, but the people of, of God have the right to ask for the assembly of the elders of God's church to provide relief for them. Uh, we see the protection of the governed uh, manifested here. And so in, in, our, in our reference here, we have a reference to the power which Christ hath given them for edification, not for destruction. There's not a scripture reference there. But that language is taken directly from the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 10, Paul wrote, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. In other words, it's a biblical expression acknowledging that there is authority vested in these offices uh, which the Lord Jesus has provided for the help and the comfort and the assistance, the government of the church of the Lord. So it belongs to the overseers and other rulers by virtue of their office to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. And so in Acts 15, verse 22, notice how, how this is explained. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, we also have in verse 23, uh, they, they sent them with the following letter, the brothers both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Notice who, who is sending this and who is cited at the head of that. And then again in verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas, and Paul, and so they, they didn't have to look outside of the church for some justification or approval for gathering or for rendering this decision. They were called by the need of the church. Uh, they, they gathered themselves together. They met. And then after they opened up God's word together, after they shared the testimony of God's work in their time, they come to a conclusion that agrees with the word of God. And it, they, they send this out um, on that ground alone. It seemed good to them to send this. It seemed good, in verse 28, to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And we won't look at the details of their decision today, but they were clearly seeking to do two things. One was um, they were clarifying the gospel that Paul had been preaching was, in fact, the true gospel. the same gospel Peter had been preaching, um, as evidenced by the conversion of Cornelius and his household, that faith in Jesus Christ alone was the way of salvation. Uh, there wasn't any room to add 
uh, any religious rights of any kind to that as the qualification for salvation. Uh, but also they have pastoral concern for the, the reality of their situation in terms of many of the believers in the church of the time were from an Old Testament background. They, were, uh, they had a lifetime of following these uh, dietary laws and the other laws that the Old Testament set forth that were of a ceremonial nature. And although the Lord Jesus Christ had come, he had declared all foods clean. He had fulfilled the purpose of the sacrificial system. He had come as the final and ultimate priest and sacrifice. He himself was the expression of the temple, as he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. Uh, he fulfilled all of those things and he was building a new man as Ephesians uh, 1 describes and 2. Uh, he was building a new man in himself but uh, nonetheless there were these who had loved God and followed after him and walked in all of these paths and it was a very difficult thing for them to adjust or to understand how after all of these centuries of that being the key distinction between those who were faithful and those who had no faith, uh, how it was that that was now all of a sudden set aside in favor of this fulfillment in Christ. For many, they struggled with that. So the decision of the council was to clarify that the gospel itself uh, was as it had been preached, faith alone in Christ, but also as a matter of pastoral uh, peacekeeping, as a matter of loving uh, their brothers, they needed to have regard for those who uh, would be offended by such things. Um, so they were asked to abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols and from blood, what had been strangled, uh, and from sexual immorality. And that, that list, uh, we have, of course, the moral law is, is certainly represented there in the sexual immorality aspect of this, but... Three of these that are referenced had to do with that ceremonial law of the Old Testament. And so they needed to uh, have care not to give offense and to give themselves over to the sanctification of God's Holy Spirit. So in the first paragraph, back to our confession, we see that assemblies of elders, commonly called synods or councils, this is God's provision for... Uh, resolution of matters that would trouble the church. And it, it corresponds for us as we think about the church being the body of Christ, there being this spiritual tie of love and fellowship in the Holy Spirit, in the Lord Jesus, that we're all members of one another. There's only one people of God. There's only one body of Christ. It's those who have faith in Him. Of course, there are many expressions of the visible church in our day. But we are to be seeking for and praying for more, um, more so, more and more that the outward expression of the church would mirror that spiritual reality of the oneness in Jesus and the unity of the church. And we see in these assemblies a, a reflection of that, that it's not just a tie of love and a tie of fellowship between congregations, but we are to function to the greatest degree possible as the one people of God, that we're, there's a connection between congregations 
of God's people. And we'll, we'll look at more of um, these councils and what, what this decision meant for the church of that time as we look through some of these other statements. So let's go on then and read the second paragraph. It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of His church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the Word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the Word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in His Word. Now we look again at some verses in Acts chapter 15. First, in verse 15, notice what it is that is appealed to. How is this decision reached? It's not only the testimony of the apostles through their ministry in sharing the gospel and seeing the Holy Spirit bless and even fall upon those who were converted and experienced faith in Jesus Christ, even those of a Gentile background, those who had never been circumcised, they also are being forgiven. They're being recognized and filled with the Holy Spirit, recognized as a part of God's people by God himself, in the case of Cornelius and his household and many others. Uh, not only are they sharing these things as apostles in a very unique way, um, but even in that context, what is it that finally resolves and clarifies, gives the direction to the assembly? Well, what are we supposed to do? There is the appeal to the Word of God. And so in, in verse 15, with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. So James, he, he has heard, um, and he seems to be uh, something of a moderator in the assembly in his role here. Uh, but after everyone had finished speaking, James, as it were, he sums it up. He, he says, well, here's what we've all heard. And of significance, here's why we have to follow or submit to uh, what we're hearing. It's because this is what God's word agrees with. And so in verse 13, after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament prophets. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. And so after, from this Old Testament prophet's perspective, after a, a season of, of judgment upon Israel for a period of unbelief, there's this promise of hope. And of course, it had to do with the, the Messiah and the work that he would do. But he says, after this, I will return. 
and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Well, how is James interpreting that? Well, surely Emmanuel has come. God is with us, the Lord Jesus, as he is named now. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. And what does the work of Messiah restoring and rebuilding the people of God, the very tent of David? Uh, it is to the, to the end that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And so it wasn't the case that uh, things would stay as they had been. Even the Old Testament prophets predicted and promised by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit a time coming when God would do an even greater work, a more pervasive work in the world, and would bring salvation even to the Gentiles. And so back to, back to, the, uh, back to the text of the confession, it belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith. What does ministerially mean? Not natively, not of their own wisdom, not of their own native authority or their own thoughts. They're not raised up. Again, there is no vicar of Christ holding forth and saying, well, I just think this is what we're going to do. There is no... Um, papal bull or uh, manifestation of authority that is bare and naked as we see in the, the case of the history and the even current practice of the Roman Catholic Church, but rather it belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith as ministers of God's Word, as those who recognize Jesus Christ isn't an absentee king and head of the church, but a present king and head of the church. They recognized his presence there with them by his spirit. They said it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What are they talking about? They're recognizing the presence of the Lord Jesus, the presence of God in that assembly. And they're acknowledging him. He's not there as an observer. He's not there as a casual observer. He's there reigning over them, ruling over them, and speaking to them. And they are there gathered to heed his word and as ministers of his word to apply that word to the situation at hand and to say, well, God is the one who has decided this as we see in his word. This is what God says. That's what it means, this uh, adverb ministerially. It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith. Now, it belongs to them to do that. Now, have synods and councils strayed from that at times? We'll, we'll see reference to that later on in our confession. Uh, but this is what is proper. This is what actually does belong in the provision that God has made for an assembly, for a senate or a council, whatever the name of it might be, an assembly of the elders of God's church gathered, what are they authorized to do? What belongs to them to determine these controversies? And it goes on and lists a number of different 
uh, descriptions of scenarios that they may be confronted with and be called upon to determine. But all of that hinges on that first adverb. They're to determine these ministerially. And we come back to this thought. This is so important as the qualifier of how this is to function. They're to determine it ministerially, and then they are called upon to authoritatively determine the same. Notice there about halfway through, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the Word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission. And so their task is to make determinations according to the Word of God. And the task of the church at large is to receive those determinations, compare them to the Word of God, and if they agree with, if they're consonant with the Word of God, then they're to be received with reverence and submission. There's no place in our confession or the Scriptures for that absolute submission, that implicit faith that some would call upon God's people to yield. No, God alone is our Lord. And these men who can gather as often as they feel the need, as often as they're called by the church, uh, their task is to listen first, to listen to the Word of God, and to apply that faithfully to the, to the matters at hand. And they are then, if, if, the, if the people of God are supposed to be comparing this to the Word of God, well, that shows the assembly what their task is. Their task is to faithfully apply the Word of God and even to explain how this is an application of the Word of God. Here's what God says. Here's what we are determining in light of what God says. Again, it shouldn't be sent out on the naked authority of men, whatever their office or position, but it should be accompanied by the the citation of the Word of God, just as James does. And so that, that key um, qualifier, it's a ministerial function and a ministerial authority. In, uh, in verse 19, um, we, we see then, Therefore, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turned to God. Why, why would the assembly make this decision? Therefore, because of what God has revealed in his word. And then again in verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, uh, these had not been sent. But down in verse 27 through 31, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, what we just read. There is a determination, there is a decision that the assembly agrees upon. They're persuaded in their own conscience by the word of God by the, the testimonies of these apostles who have, who have shared not only uh, what they have done, but how God has blessed what they did with these mighty signs and miracles and wonders in their time. And of course, 
as we've as we've noted before, that was necessary and a supplement uh, in terms of distinguishing. Well, in a day when God's word was not yet complete in its written form, uh, these are the very men who would be used to give us the rest of God's word. Well, how how can the church discern between what would put itself forth as God's word and be God's word and what would put itself forth as God's word but be put forth by men who didn't even have the Holy Spirit? How could they determine or distinguish and discern between the two? Well, it was these signs and wonders. That was their function, not just to uh, show people the power of God, but particularly to validate the message that was accompanying that sign or that miracle or that wonder. And so there are witnesses who have come with Paul and Barnabas, you remember, from Antioch. And they're bearing witness by multiple witnesses. Here's, here's what we've seen God do. And this is the message that he has validated with these signs and wonders. But even in that day, we have the reference to the written scriptures. And of course, in the days that we live, since the canon has been completed, um, the need for those signs and wonders, even the office of apostle itself, has uh, served its function. And we now simply have the written word of God, which is complete and, and able to give us that wisdom and instruction that we need. And uh, back to the confession, our, our footnote we also have a reference to Acts chapter 16, verse 4. And so what, what is the authority? As we read through the confession in this paragraph, uh, there's a reference to the authority of that determination. It is, if it's agreeable to the Word of God, if it's consonant to the Word of God, it has authority. It's not just a suggestion. It's not just something that might be taken or left, but the church is to recognize the presence of God in that assembly, the work of God in bringing his word to light and applying that, and these elders in submission to that word have given a decision that the church is to receive as from the Lord. And so in Acts 16, verse 4, uh, these who left the assembly... Uh, notice in verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Uh, the same thing in Matthew chapter 18, verses we've read several times recently. But in verses 17 through 20, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, what's the presumption behind that statement? It is that these who have gathered are listening to the word of God, and faithfully carrying that forward in their determinations. They're submitting to God's word. That's how their determination has such authority, that it would reflect the reality of what God himself has done in heaven. 
That's how it would reflect that. In verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And we, we, we sometimes overlook the context of that. It's a sweet thing to think about God being with his people, even in a very small gathering. His presence is with us. That's true. The context of that statement, though, being the discipline of the church over those who refuse to repent, it's, it's a reference to the core of the church. It's a reference to that gathering of the officers of the church to seek to persuade to repentance, and then if, if that proves unsuccessful over the course of time, to act upon putting that individual outside of the church that they might be regarded as a Gentile and a tax collector. And again, assuming that that's being done in submission to and obedience to the Word of God, God says uh, he, he recognizes their actions as reflecting what is done in heaven, as being done in His very presence, as being done as before Him, and as being done with, with Him agreeing with them about the, the matter that is being acted upon. That's the original significance of that promise. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so the Lord was there among the assembly in Jerusalem, and he blessed their decision to be faithful to the word of God, and it was sent out as being, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is what God has led us to determine according to his word. Well, we'll stop there this morning due to the time, but we'll look forward next week to looking at more of what scriptures would teach us about the authority of those synods or councils particularly um, and how we should regard them. Well, let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness, the unshakable faithfulness of your word. We thank you that it alone is infallible. It is beyond the even question of error. We thank you that it is uh, inerrant. We thank you that there is no fault in your word. And we pray for the officers of your church that they would be first submissive and first good listeners to your word, that they might be found faithful and make right determinations. Lord, we grieve over the dearth of that in our day and time, and we pray that you might restore it. We ask that you would bless again the gathering of the Presbytery of our church down in Georgia in the next week. Lord, we pray that you would please have mercy and meet with us and give us that submissive spirit to your word. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing that it is that we might have resolution, we might have a place of appeal, a place of protection from an abuse of authority. Lord, we thank you for the broader gathering of elders that you provide for the upbuilding, edification, and better government of your church. We make our prayer in Jesus' name.